0: The last two weeks we took up the story of the Samaritan woman at the well and Jesus' explanation of living water. We'll continue in our reading from the Gospel of John uh, immediately after that story. is a story which has two basic sections. The first one is very brief, and then the last one is the main part, but I want to consider both of them, so we will read the whole story first, and then take up each section. Now, after two days, that is after, right after he stayed there two days, as the story said, as we just read last week, uh, answering the questions of the Samaritans, giving them darshan, and initiating them. Now, after two days, he departed thence, and went into Galilee, that is to say, home. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the Father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed in his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Okay, basically, that is, of course, the story of a healing. Um, but it's prefaced in a very peculiar way. And I want to point out the peculiarity without necessarily... Explaining it fully, but show its parallels in the other gospels also. It says Now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee, which is to say his own country, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Now that in statement in itself is obviously in the tradition for a very important reason. It's repeated in every single gospel in one form or another. Uh, the forms vary slightly the way it's repeated uh, in somewhat different contexts also, although there are connections in all four Gospels between the contexts. Um, when something is found in all the four Gospels, it is a reasonable assumption that it's Played such an important part in the early tradition that uh, all of the traditions united at that point. And even though we know that the gospel writers used very different traditions in order to uh, write their gospels, when something is found that often, there's an excellent chance that um, it was considered to be very important by the people who remembered these things. So here, though, it's very peculiar because um, it doesn't, many scholars and other people uh, have been puzzled by the way it's placed right here. Because right after uh, it says that Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country, uh, it says that the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. And then it tells the story of his healing. In other words, it doesn't seem to make sense in its placement. However, we will see that it does make a sense, and I think a very important sense. But before we go into that, I want to read the parallel placement in Luke, in which the same statement is found. It's a very different um, story, and it may be that uh, Jesus said this quite a lot which would explain why it's connected with different stories. Or it may be that this story and the other one are fitted together like a jigsaw puzzle, too. This is in Luke chapter 4, verse 16 on. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is a quote now from Isaiah, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, which means the year or the time of the Lord's grace, by the way. That's a little confusing translation there, but that's what it means. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said that in this translation, that appears to be a positive statement, but the context of the story shows that it is not, that the gracious words are the author's uh, contribution, that they did not think they were so gracious. You will see as we go on, this is true. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of the truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he passing through the midst midst of them went his way, and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And taught them on the Sabbath days, and they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. Now, that is also an extremely interesting story. The two stories together, it is very possible that they are interconnected, uh, and that John's version presupposes the knowledge of this version. Um, This version. In a much skimpier form appears in both Matthew and Mark. Matthew says that he could do no miracles because of their lack of faith. Mark says that he did heal one or two who were sick, which could well be the uh, healing mentioned in John. Now, there's a lot to go into here, and I will try to be reasonably concise, but first of all, the quote from the prophet Isaiah. Throughout this passage, of course, Jesus identifies himself very fully with the prophetic tradition as found in Israel. Uh, not only does he begin his discourse by reading from Isaiah, that is, taking in the same way that the modern masters base their discourses on the shabdas of some past master, in the same way uh, he opened up to the prophet Isaiah, read from him, and then his discourse began from there. And the the, second, the quote from Isaiah that he chose is very interesting because if we read it carefully, um, we see that it does define um, Jesus' mission very clearly in ways that are, are perhaps easily misunderstood. He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Um, that has all kinds of connotations in in Christian uh, institutional language or minds formed by that language, but in reality what he's saying is he has anointed me to tell the good news um, to the poor ones, which can easily not necessarily mean economically poor, although it certainly can mean them, and we know from modern experience also that it is very much more likely, especially in traditional societies, that the have-nots... The people who have very little materially, but it is them who will pay attention to the Master um, in far greater proportions than those who have a lot. But uh, we haven't yet gone into the Sermon on the Mount, but when we do, we will go into exactly what Jesus meant by poor, in such phrases as, blessed are the poor in spirit. And generally speaking, uh, I think it's safe to say that in many of these places it means those who are ready to hear because they don't have a lot of stuff standing between them and the Master. So, that he's saying, he's he's anointed me to tell the good news to those who want to hear it. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, all of these four things here are using terms like heal, recovering of sight, etc., which can easily be taken to mean physically, but if we read it carefully, we see that's not what is meant at all. He's healing the brokenhearted, those who are miserable because of the limitations of life, deliverance to the captives, very suggestive image if we have heard the Master speak at all, recovering of sight to the blind may mean physically blind, as we will see later when we take up the ninth chapter of John. uh, It is almost certain, and I think we can say that it is certain, that Jesus is talking about inner sight to all of us who are spiritually blind. To set at liberty them that are bruised. In other words, to liberate those who are hurting. All of these things are terms that the modern masters would use without any question at all and often have, in fact, to describe their mission, and we find it right in the prophetic tradition of Israel, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. As I said earlier, that means simply to proclaim that the time is now, the time of grace has come. Accepting this and choosing this as a definition of his mission, I think he was very clearly uh, proclaiming exactly what he had come to do. And he did it using the words of a past master, exactly as the modern masters do. That does not explain why, uh, if there is any, it explains why all right, but it doesn't explain if there is any antecedent to the ill will that is there, okay? We can assume, as I said, that wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth Is a um, euphemism for a negative reaction um, because the rest of the story doesn't make sense if it's not. But he is very bold. Now uh, masters differ very much uh, according to the circumstance in how clearly and how boldly they reveal themselves. And not so much that masters differ from each other, but that any one master may differ from one circumstance to another. In other places, Jesus is very cautious. He will not say uh, what he is in a very strict, straightforward way. Uh, in this place, he's just letting it all hang out. I mean, it doesn't—he's not pulling any punches. This is happening today, and it produces a negative reaction. It is not this Joseph's son? And one of the things about this whole business of a prophet being without honor in his own country is is this. That it is very difficult for human beings to reverence that which they take for granted. If you see somebody around you all the time, and this applies, there's a lot of applications, not just to the obvious one given here. It applies also to disciples of a master, who can come to take him for granted too? It has other applications also, even beyond that. It's a it's a basic human psychological fact that um, there's even a proverb that refers to it, but I can't think of it right now. We all know it, but I just can't think of it. Uh, yeah, familiarity breeds contempt. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, even in the even when a person accepts someone as a master and has reason to know that he's a master has seen with their own eyes his greatness in one way or another even then um, they can get into such a position and can uh, put themselves in such a mental state that they although they will still say yeah he's great he's a master and all that um they will in fact not pay any attention to him at all. And this happens uh, in the missions of many masters, especially toward the end of their lives, when there are a lot of people around them who have begun to take them for granted. And I will say a little more about that a little later. Danny says, uh, in almost an aggressive way, will surely say unto me this proverb physician heal thyself whatever whatsoever we have heard done in capernaum do also here in thy country in other words we're, we're we're watching you brother perform produce do it like if any of you saw jesus christ superstar which i don't necessarily recommend if you didn't but uh there is a when jesus is taken to see herod uh which is taken from the gospel. And Herod demands of him that he perform a miracle. And in one of the more memorable sections, he says, walk across my swimming pool. And Jesus is standing there looking at him. This is the attitude that uh, apparently the people have here. And it need, I need not say that if anyone goes to a master with this attitude, uh, they get nowhere. And he said, I'm telling you the truth. Verily I say unto you means nothing else than this. I am telling you the truth no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of the truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah. This refers to an Old Testament story in the the account of the prophet Elijah in the books of Kings, when there was a great famine. And Elijah was sent by God to a widow in Syria. Okay? Not a Jewish widow. Not an Israeli. And he saved her. He performed the miracle and saved her and her son who were starving to death. And then he says again about there were at the time of Elisha there were lepers. But Elisha cleansed one leper in his whole life, and that was Naaman the Syrian. Again a non Israeli, somebody out of it according to the standards of the religious establishment. And supposedly even of the of the God of Israel. So it's a he's citing to them a very strong paradox that is found in their own scriptures, and also his scriptures. And this infuriates them. We can assume that they were as infuriated as anything by the fact that uh, he had implicitly identified himself with Elijah and Elisha, and nothing makes people angrier than uh, someone in the present day presuming to speak with power, as it says further down. It is very hard. It is one thing for people to accept divinity, thus saith the Lord, a prophet, when they read about it in a book and it happened in the past. Unless you're seeking specially for these things, unless you have a real burning thing within your heart, it is very hard to accept that this can be happening right now in the present time. It demands a whole different response from us, for one thing. Um, When we read about things in the books, and this is one of the reasons why Bibliolatry is so popular; uh, we read about it, and our own construct is put on it, and no one can tell us differently. Okay, it may be if we, uh, if the particular religious group we belong to is authoritarian in nature, there will be a given line to follow in regard to our interpretation. But even then, there is a lot of leeway uh, when it comes right down to the individual nitty-gritty. But when we're face to face with somebody, who is telling us, all right, God is speaking to you, uh, this puts a demand that is very hard to deal with. And really, there are only two ways to deal three ways to deal with it. One is to accept it, one is to ignore it, and one is to become furiously angry. And uh, the third reaction is what is happening here. And after all, it's Joseph's son. He grew up here. What is this? You know, Who is he to tell us this sort of thing? He's telling us that he's come to, to, to deliver us, to give us our sight. We're not even blind. To, to, to set at liberty us? This is the acceptable year of the Lord? It's not at all a difficult thing to, uh, to understand their reaction. And yet, um, as we know, they were very tragically wrong. Now, they were going to kill him. This seems almost far-fetched. But we know that mobs will do uh, very extreme things when they're roused, they're acting and mob psychology is, is obviously coming into play here. And Master Kripal used to tell of how, after he was first initiated by Baba Singh, he went back to his own village of Syed Kasran, and he testified that he had gone to Baba Singh and about his greatness, and uh, this caused a great deal of opposition in his own village amongst the Akalis who were there, and they made arrangements to kill him. They were going to someone came and they were going to take him out to the wilderness. They invited him to go with them out to the wilderness and there they were going to ambush him and leave him and it would appear, of course, as though bandits had done it. Uh, in the rural India it is crimes like that happen quite easily. And no one would have known who. And Master has described how they how they came to get him and he went with them and they told him that someone was waiting to see him but he went anyway knowing full well what was going to happen and when he got there they just couldn't do it very very similar story really to this one Uh, when the chips were down uh, jesus was just walked through them and went on his way and that's pretty much what master did also later on he described how he met the ringleader of the uh akalis who wanted to kill him in Uh, Lahore and invited him to his house for dinner. When the man came, he cried like anything and said, I was going to kill you, and you've invited me for dinner. And the master laughed and said, It didn't matter, and like that. For one thing, uh, he didn't kill him, and and I'm sure that the master knew that he was not going to. So, anyway, these things don't happen just once. Uh, Almost, I think, everything in the Bible. Uh, that even the stuff that seems hardest to believe has been uh, reproduced maybe thousands of times in the lifetime of various masters. And it's sometimes funny to read scholars arguing about this is, this is logical, or this is not logical, this is likely, this is not likely, when I have myself seen or experienced things just like that uh, in the company of my own master. I want to... Before we go back to the story of the healing, in Sanchi's discourse on Master's passing, which we heard the other day on tape, um, he also goes into this another aspect of this complacency, familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, and this is an important thing to understand, I think. Uh, it's definitely one aspect of this profit without honor business. Those who say that they have spent a lot of time with the Master and have written books and like that, you can read about them. As Master Singh said, those who live with me are like the bloodsuckers. There are other ones who come from far away who drink the milk. And the same thing comes in the writings of Kapal. Again and again he said, those who live with me are bloodsuckers. This is a hard saying, what would be called in the Gospels a hard saying. It's true, though, that... um, Master Kupal used to say it a lot. I heard it the first time many years ago from him. and In its entirety, what he said was, he quoted Master Salancing, and he said that uh, it was in the context of someone saying to him that the people, either thinking that the people who lived in his ashram were very advanced people, or expressing surprise at something they had done, which indicated that they weren't advanced. And He quoted Master Singh and said that those who live near me all the time are like ticks clinging to the cow's udder and sucking its blood. Those who come from afar to see me are like the calf who comes from a dis- distant pasture to drink my milk or to drink the cow's milk. And that is the the entire image in its entirety. Now, this was important to me. When I, when I first went to India, Judith and I went together in 1965, we thought uh, that everybody that lived at Samhain Ashram was at least by the, on the third plane. And this was, we thought something like that. We were tremendously impressed with, with everyone there. They were very kind to us. I mean, we should have been impressed with them on, on one level. They treated us like kings, and there was a lot of love. And we picked up on that, but we went way too far with it. When I got back, I wrote an account of our stay over there, which was the first uh, thing that I ever wrote that that got published and sent around. And in that, I spent a lot of time talking about the people at the ashram. I did what what Sanchi calls praising the Sevadars. And I I really gave them a lot of attention. Later on, I came to regret that, um, because I came to see that, that it was not like that. That even though they had been kind to me, and loving, and certainly I should love them, that it was a great mistake to assume that they were uh, advanced souls or in any way knew more than I did or any other initiate just because they lived always around the Master. And you would think that since darshan is a good thing and to be around the Master is a good thing and we all want to do it and we all (coughs) spend a lot of money if we have it, and take time and do it, and, sa- and sacrifice anything that we can, I think, to do it, uh, that therefore the more we have, the better, and that it's therefore a very wise thing to, to live with him at his ashram. And it just isn't so. As Sanchi goes on to say, when someone asked Master Salon you can read this in his writings also, can I come and live in your ashram? Master Salon said, you see, you should not think of living in the ashram until you reach Dasvandvara and know the real glory of the Master. Now, this doesn't mean that the people living there have reached Daswandwar, it means that it's not something to desire until you reach there. As a matter of fact, the people living in Master's ashram, uh, like the people in any ashram anywhere, are there for the seva that they are able to do, and it doesn't really have much to do with their spiritual advancement. But in terms of, of desiring it or wanting it, that's the point. Because if you come and live with the Master in his ashram, then the desire for having the darshan of the Master goes away. Sometimes Master has to smile at people and deal with them lovingly, and sometimes he has to rebuke the people and use harsh words. So there is a chance of losing faith in the Master. Many, many times in my early uh, stays with Kripal Singh, I saw things that I couldn't understand and put in perspective, and those things... Uh, often made me doubt. Many times. Sometimes the day after he had shown me exactly and fully what he was to the extent that I was able to grasp it, I would then see something that bothered me and I would begin to doubt. And uh, this is the problem that we can't always... The Master acts out of full knowledge of any given circumstance. And we can't know. He can give when he's harsh on people. Often I have jumped in if I see the Master being harsh with somebody one time in '72, when Master Kapal was here, uh, he was giving out prashad. That is, one of the dear ones brought him some prashad. He was down at his house. And uh, uh, she brought him a big cake, all cut up nicely, to distribute. And Master gave her a hard time. You know, he, said, uh, he really was quite stern with her. And he said, do you want something from me? What do you want from me? And he was looking right in her eyes. And she didn't say anything. And he said, "Do you want a child?" And she didn't say anything. I was sitting there. I was really embarrassed. You know, I, I felt terrible for her sake. And I jumped in and said, "Master, she just wanted to to uh, to distribute prashad to everybody." He said, "I know what I'm doing." <laughs> <laughs> afterwards, afterwards, she told me that uh, she loved that that particular thing. that Master was looking in her eyes so strongly, and that she was getting only love, even though his words were stern. So I felt like a total idiot. But it's, you see, it's easy to to uh, to jump to that conclusion. <coughs> anyway, there are lots of other uh, incidents like that, and it's true. I mean, the, the story was told, how Master threw a guy out of Samhain Ashram one time. Beat him up. I heard that. Somebody told me master beat up this guy and threw him out of the ashram. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> and then I heard the whole story. You know, it's a it's a complicated thing. It was a very complicated story, but it all made sense when I heard it. And, and uh, again, the master knew what he was doing. And so it goes. Sometimes you hear things too that people who are around the master don't fully understand, and they tell you, and then gee, it's really hard to to deal with. And uh, That happened to me also. So I finally uh, realized that on that level there is always room for misunderstanding, that we have to go by the basic love that is created between him and us. And that is actually, it is developed by being with him, but not by being with him more than we are able to take. Uh, Kent used the image that I've often quoted of being in front of the fire and warming up when you're cold and then uh, being compelled to work in front of the fire all day long. And in the second circumstance, you get very um, hot. In the first, you just get toasty warm and then go back out to the cold and come in again and you get warm again, and like that. So there is a chance of losing faith in the Master. And when we see him more often than the desire for seeing him goes away, and by living in the Dera many other shortcomings can also come. And then people become proud of living at the ashram. So that is why Master used to say, until you rise above and reach Daswan Dwar, and so forth. And then he quotes, when people live in the ashram, you will be doing seva there, and people will praise you. And of course, this has happened. It happened at Sawan Ashram. It happened also at least on one occasion at the uh, Ashram at 77RB, too. They will take all your good qualities and leave their anger, egoism, hatred, etc. with you. Etc. and all sorts of other reasons. You will become proud of yourself for being a sadhu. Those who are not living at the ashram will bow down to you and plunder you. Well, all of this is a part of, it happened to, uh, the disciples of Christ. It happened to the disciples of Samhain Singh. It happened to the disciples of Kapal Singh. And it will probably happen sooner or later to some disciples of Ajayb Singh also. Um, it seems to be an inevitable part of the, the test that the Master's presence is for all of us. That same kind of challenge that when the Master reveals himself, then we have to respond to it one way or another, that same kind of challenge also comes up uh, if we are given the opportunity to do seva for him or to be with him, then this also is a test and a challenge. and uh, It takes lots of different forms like uh there is a lot of information people who were around Master a friend of mine told me once that um, he was very imp- i forget the circumstances with which it began, but uh in any event he indicated to master that um, he had reason to think that the, the people the sadars at Sawan ashram were really advanced people, and that they uh I think one of them had rebuked him for something and he was worried about it and he took it very seriously. And Master called a meeting of the Sevadars and he brought this fellow in too and he went around and asked each one who was keeping their diary and also how many hours of meditation they had put in. And nobody, not one Sevadar was keeping the diary and the amount of meditation that was put in was pitifully small and therefore my friend realized that he need not worry about what they said to him, that they had no more authority than anyone else. Uh, so it's a great responsibility. There are... I know of, of at Salan Ashram, when I was there in '69, I heard of the Sevadar uh who was very loving to the master, but he wouldn't meditate. And I was told that the master often said to him, you should meditate. And he would say, no, I have your darshan without. I don't care if I have it within or not. I'm happy having it without. And sometimes people are are almost proud of that attitude, and and you realize what what does this mean in terms of the Master's mission? What is it uh, accomplishing for that person? He has the darshan, but what fruit is it bearing? Later on in uh, in the Gospels, we will read how the disciples are arguing with each other, who is going to be who is going to sit on his right hand and who on his left when they come into the kingdom. This was a big a- item of concern to these guys, um, who in just a few short weeks were going to not have the Master with them anymore at all. And They were very badly rebuked, and we all know of similar circumstances too. And this is why, you see, is why the Master's wishes are ignored, uh, as he is compelled more and more to deal with people who more and more take him for granted. I heard things, I can't verify them firsthand, but I heard them, I have no reason to think that they are not true. Of The way Master was treated at the end of his life, at Sawan ashram, that his food was not prepared adequately. His wishes, whether he should be in the hospital or at the ashram, were ignored. Um, I know for a fact that any number of people took it upon themselves to tell him, not to ask him, but to tell him who his successor was going to be. I know that because they wrote it very clearly very proudly even, um, that they told the Master what to do in that regard. If over and over again we see this pattern there, then um, it is small wonder that things fall apart the instant that the Master leaves the body, and that he is perhaps not unwilling to go. I think I wrote in the tour account for the 1977 tour how um, the master tore me apart one day, I would say. I would use those words advisedly, although he was really very really loving, uh, because I wasn't meditating enough. And I was sleeping in the tent just outside of his house at the Shemas retreat, and he went by, he'd go by every morning and he would see me sleeping. And one morning he told me that, uh, that I was talking too much to people, and I was sleeping too much, and I wasn't meditating enough. He was very strict, and I was totaled, as you would say, and uh, it was a great lesson to me, a very great lesson to me, because I was doing exactly this thing. i have been with him a lot, i have been traveling with him constantly, night and day, and I was taking him for granted. Not outwardly, I would never have thought that I was, but what was I doing? I was ignoring one of his basic wishes, and as he said, people are coming to you. And folding their hands and asking you your advice, and they're getting up at three and meditating, and you are sleeping till five or six. He says, very kind of them to come and ask you for advice when um, they are actually doing much better than you are. And I was, as someone once said about someone else in a similar circumstance, dissolved all over the floor at that point. Well, it happens, and it's a, it's a fact of human nature. And basically, that's why uh, a prophet is without honor in his own country, and in his own family, as we will see later on in the Gospels, particular um, reference to that, and among his even his closest ones, his so-called chief disciples, uh, in terms of what he's really there to do, he is also without honor even with them. So we did not get to go into the second part of the story on the healing of the nobleman's son. Actually, it's a royal official, not a nobleman, per se. Um, But we will take that up next week. That also is a very interesting story with a lot of ramifications for the understanding of the path, too. And the whole point, we will go in a little further to the subject of miracles and the masters, although we have done that to some extent. We'll take it up some more in connection with this story, because there are some further implications that are very interesting.